Chapter 16 of The Women Who Make Our Novels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. The Women Who Make Our Novels by Grant Overton. Chapter 16 Anna Catherine Green. The real Anna Catherine Green is a terrible mystery. We do not mean Mrs. Charles Rolfe's of 156 Park Street, Buffalo, whose husband is an expert maker of fine furniture and who wrote initials only and the Levensworth case. We mean the Anna Catherine Green mind, a mind no longer young counted by years, a mind as subtle and powerful and clever as ever, counted by achievement. Read The Mystery of the Hasty Arrow, published at the close of 1917, if you doubt that mind's unabated mastery. Anna Catherine Green, but hush, what awe-inspiring quality invests the mere whisper of that name? Why do cold shivers run up and down our backs? Why in our commonplace surroundings? Porch, porch chairs, typewriter, manuscript, why? Why do we chill all over? Why do the thrills in dots and dashes, like a hurrying Morse code, torture our nerves? We will tell you. It is because last night we opened a book and read, Where is Bella? A high and narrow gate of carefully joined boards, standing ajar in a fence of the same construction. What is there in this, to rouse a whole neighbourhood, and collect before it a group of eager, anxious, hesitating people? I will tell you. This fence is no ordinary fence, and this gate no ordinary gate. Nor is the fact of the latter standing a trifle open, one to be lightly regarded, or taken as an inconsiderate advantage of, for this is Judge Ostrander's place. We read and we read. The others retired for the night. The pale moon swam slowly through the heavens, regarding us with a calm, cold indifference. The town clock boomed midnight, then one, then two. Fatality hung in the air. Horror coursed in the veins, and the blood ceased to pulse through the arteries. Occasionally, a ripened apple dropped from the nearby tree to the ground. At the thud we jumped, but we could not stop until... On page 381, the last of Dark Hollow, we had read the solemn words, Peace for him, and for Reuther and Oliver, hope. Then we crept off to bed. Utter exhaustion of all sensation brought swift sleep. It must have been about a third of the way through that the conviction stole over us of Judge Ostrander's guilt. Who murdered Algernon Etheridge in Dark Hollow? Did John Scoville, executed for the crime, did, shuddering thought, Young Oliver Ostrander slay that friend of his father's whom he hated so. Neither. Neither. Then who? Why, the unlikeliest person in the book, of course. And trust Anna Catherine Green to make it plausible. Mrs. Green. It is difficult to know whether to call Mrs. Rolfe's Miss Green or Mrs. Green. Mrs. Green cannot write for a cent, a slang has it, but she can write and has written for a good many dollars. And by that we don't mean her motive is purely businesslike. We prefer to believe that she writes for the exercise of her marvellous and peculiar talent and to afford excitement and entertainment to many thousands who read her books. What is this talent? It is impossible in writing about her to avoid falling into the theatricism of her narrative style. Did you ever try to write a mystery story? If you have tried, you will understand much better than we can tell you. And if you haven't, it will be necessary to take a single specimen of Mrs. Green's work to illustrate her powers. Dark Hollow, and she never wrote a more excellent yarn. 
centres about the murder of Algernon Etheridge, twelve years before the narrative begins. John Scoville, keeper of a tavern, was tried and executed for the crime, swearing his innocence. Etheridge was the closest personal friend Judge Archibald Ostrander had. Circumstances compelled Judge Ostrander to preside at Scoville's trial, and the judge was not merely impartial, but manifestly favoured, so far as was compatible with fairness, the defence. The evidence against Scoville was purely circumstantial but strong. He had been in Dark Hollow that night at the time of the crime. Etheridge was killed with Scoville's stick. Scoville's character was bad. For twelve years since the crime, Judge Ostrander has lived shut off from the world, except for his appearances on the bench. His grounds are walled off by a high board fence within a high board fence, and he lives alone with a huge negro servant. His son and he have parted irrevocably. When the story opens, this negro, Bella, has gone forth on morning errands, unprecedentedly leaving the gate in the fence ajar. A woman in purple, heavily veiled, has entered the grounds. The gaping neighbourhood ventures in after her, but does not find her. The crowd comes upon the judge sitting erect and apparently lifeless in his house. It is an attack of catalepsy. A little later the negro, mortally wounded by an automobile, returns and dies, trying to guard the iron door in the house which preserves his master's secret. The woman in purple turns out to be Mrs. Scoville. She sees the judge and tells him that his son Oliver has fallen in love with her daughter, Reuther. She also tells him of her conviction that her husband did not slay Etheridge. It is a conviction arrived at since his execution. Late as it is, she is determined to do what she can to uncover new evidence. Chapter by chapter, piling sensation on sensation, Mrs. Green writes of Mrs. Scoville's quest. There is the shadow of the man in the peaked cap, seen advancing into Dark Hollow at the hour of the crime. There is the picture of Oliver Ostrander, secreted in his father's house, with a band of black painted across the eyes. There is the point of a knife blade in the stick with which Etheridge was killed, and the blade from which it was broken lies folded in Oliver's desk. A peaked cap hangs in Oliver's closet. Just when every circumstance drives home the conviction of Oliver's guilt, Judge Ostrander shows Mrs. Scoville a written statement that establishes the fact of an earlier murder by her husband. She is taken all aback, and for the moment she believes again that the right man was put to death for the murder of Etheridge. But the judge allows her to look at the document a moment too long. It has been tampered with at the close. Forgery has been done. Oliver must be found, for an accusation against him has got abroad and the police are looking for him. There is a race between the agents of the district attorney and the messengers of the judge. He is found in a remote spot, in the Adirondacks and flees, but whether to return home at his father's summons or to escape to Canada, who knows? By a desperate drop over the side of a cliff, he has landed in a treetop. The train is not due for fifteen minutes. He'll catch it. The train south, yes, and the train north, they pass here. Is it a return or a flight to escape? Thus, in chapter after chapter, Mrs. Green creates new suspense, introduces new thrills. As each lesser uncertainty is resolved, a fresh one takes its place, and always the great major questions hang unanswered over her story, till the very close. Then the one closed avenue to a solution is unbarred. The stunning surprise is sprung, and the curtain falls swiftly on a stupefying denouement. Between the big revelation and the very end of the tale, there is just time enough and just explanation enough 
to convince the reader of what he would least have believed before. This faint outline of a capital story illustrates Mrs. Green's talent. Now for the explanation. The whole art of it consists in a truly infinite capacity for taking pains. Before writing this story, it was necessary to write, or get clearly in mind, the biographies of half a dozen people. Their lives had to be fully known to the author, even to innumerable incidents which would not be used in her story. Particularly was it necessary to know every aspect in the past of the relations of these people to each other. It was next necessary to reconstruct the crime. A period of twenty minutes or half an hour at a given place was under consideration. Where was this place, and where did it stand with respect to every other place in the story? Judge Ostrander's house, the Claymore Inn, the ruin of Spencer's Folly. A map had to be made. It is an illustration in the book, but much more than a map was necessary. The exact whereabouts of every one of half a dozen persons for the whole twenty minutes or half an hour had to be settled. Etheridge, Scoville, Mrs. Scoville, Oliver, and Judge Ostrander were all in or near Dark Hollow. Just where was each at every moment? Just what was each doing? Just what could and did each say and do and hear and see? The author must know all these things in order to spare the reader what is irrelevant. She must have every inch of the ground at her fingertips and every instant clear. You don't believe this? Try writing a story like Dark Hollow, improvising as you go along, or working from a mere outline, and see what happens to you. The only improvisation in such work as Mrs Green's is in respect of what might be called chapter climaxes. The brief thrills, one or more to a chapter which arise, administer their shock to the reader's nerves, and are cleared up some pages later. Many of these are planned in advance. A few suggested themselves as the writer goes along. Others are real inspirations, which have suggested themselves during the writing, and are substituted for planned but less effective climaxes. Such is the incident cited above, where two trains, one bound south and the other bound for Canada, meet and pass at the little mountain station. It is frequently said that the whole art of a mystery story, or detective story, of the kind Mrs Green writes, is to direct suspicion at every person except the right one until the end. This is clever and partly true, but it takes no account of the vast amount of construction which must go forward before a sentence of the story can be put on paper. It ignores the fact that the criminal, to be convincing, must have figured in the story from the start, for otherwise he will appear as a desperate invention to help the author out of an otherwise insoluble situation. Looking at Dark Hollow in retrospect, it was quite easy to see why certain things had to be so. Judge Ostrander had to be the murderer, because he was the person least likely to kill his dearest friend. Oliver had to be under suspicion to make Judge Ostrander's confession plausible. The judge had to be the murderer. Furthermore, that Ruth of Scoville might not be an unfit person to become the wife of Oliver. Oliver had to be cleared that he might be fit to mate with Reuther. Yes, yes, but all this wisdom after the events gets nowhere. It does not penetrate to the heart of the action and throws no light on the author's cunning. Do you suppose for a moment that she made her story out of such nice little expediences as these? You can't build a story that way. It won't hold together for a moment. No. The real starting point in Dark Hollow was the conception on the part of Mrs Green of a man who should, in a moment's fit of passion, slay his closest friend and who should thereafter, for twelve years, inflict on himself a peculiar punishment, imprisoning himself in a convict cell in his own home. 
all the rest, the painting of a black band across the eyes of his son's portrait, that they might not look on his father, murderer and coward, the sending of that son away from home for all time, the building of a double fence to guard against intrusion by so much as an eye at a knot-hole, all these followed. Then, on this solid foundation of a single life, a single idea, a single stricken conscience, arose, course by course, the complicated and wonderful, but solid and sound, structure of the book. This is the talent of Anna Catherine Green, explained, analysed, and illustrated. Things there are about it that cannot be explained or analysed. These we pass. We have said that she cannot write. It is true. The Leavenworth case, and the mystery of the hasty arrow, and dark hollow, every one of her many books is wretchedly written, full of trite and cheap expressions, full of clichés, dotted with ludicrous trifles of thought and expression, spotted with absurdities, as where the negro Bella is struck and fatally injured by an automobile at the outset of Dark Hollow. The car inflicted a terrible gash in his head, and we are informed that it took a sixty-horsepower racing machine going at a high rate of speed to kill him, and then it didn't do it instantaneously. If Mrs. Green could have had a collaborator with only average literary skill, she would carry everything irresistibly before her. Her mind, joined to a pen capable of writing freshly, simply, with dramatic effect, but without theatricism, without sentimental mawkishness, would have achieved books to be put on the shelf alongside the stories of Poe, classical, perfect, immortal. But if she is not immortal, she will live a long, long time, without ever having created a character to compare with Sherlock Holmes. She has constructed tales more baffling than any of the crimes Sir Conan Doyle's detective solved. She has not had to resort to exotic colouring, as Doyle has sometimes had to do, to conceal thinness of story. She has not had to depend upon abstruse mathematical ciphers and codes, as Poe did in The Gold Bug. She has not had to carry us through generations and coincidences, as Gaborio did in file number 113. She never employs the fanciful inversions and mystical paradoxes by which Gilbert K. Chesterton establishes not so much the existence of crime and criminals as the innocence of Father Brown. She can handle more complex strands than Melville, Davison Post, but Mr. Post can write rings around her. When we get the Anna Catherine Green mind and the Melville, Davison Post art joined in a single person, America will produce the detective and mystery stories, not of a decade, nor of a generation, but of all time. Meanwhile, let us give Mrs. Green her due. In her way, and we have tried to show her way, and to differentiate it from the ways of others, she is the most accomplished storyteller in American literary history. She is unique, and with anything unique, it is well to be satisfied. Books by Anna Catherine Green The Leavenworth Case a. L. Burt Company, New York. A Strange Disappearance. The Sword of Damocles. Hand and Ring. The Mill Mystery. Marked Personal. Miss Heard and Enigma. Behind Closed Doors. Cynthia Wakeham's Money. Dr. Izard. The Old Stone House and Other Stories. Seven to Twelve. X, Y, Z. The Doctor, His Wife and the Clock. The Affair Next Door. Lost Man's Lane. Agatha Webb. Recife's Daughter, A Drama. 
A Difficult Problem and Other Stories The Circular Study One of My Sons The Filigree Ball The Defence of the Bride and Other Poems 1894 G. P. Putnam's Sons, New York The Millionaire Baby, 1905, Bert The House in the Mist, 1905 The Amethyst Box, 1905 The Chief Legatee, 1906 Dodd, Mead and Company, New York The Mayor's Wife, 1907 Three Thousand Dollars, 1909 the House of the Whispering Pines, 1910, Bert. Initials Only, 1911, Dodd, Mead, Bert reprinted in the Army and Navy Library of Detective Fiction, 1918. Masterpieces of Mystery, 1912, Dark Hollow, 1914, Dodd, Mead, Bert. The Golden Slipper and Other Problems for Violet Strange, 1915. The Woman in the Alcove, 1916, Bert. The Mystery of the Hasty Arrow, 1917, Dodd Mead. End of chapter 16.